0: you are listening to episode 89 of the Tennis Files podcast
1: with special guest Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another fantastic, stupendous, great episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Aranshad, and I create and produce weekly podcast episodes to help you improve your tennis game and take it to the next level. And actually, I should say, I don't really produce these, I kind of do, but I also have an editor, uh, Omar, who I'm very thankful for. But in any case, um, today I have a great uh, interview with. Grand Slam champion Johan Creek. I actually interviewed Johan at one of my tennis summits previously, and I interviewed him about secrets to a world-class serve. And if you don't know about Johan, he uh, reached a high of number seven in the world. Uh, He won two Australian Opens. He He made the semis at the U.S. Open and at the French, the quarters of Wimbledon. Um, uh, and he's won 22 titles in total. Uh, he's beaten some incredible players too, like Andre Agassi, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, and Bjorn Borg. And so, uh, it was definitely an, an honor to speak uh, and interview uh, Johan Creek uh, to figure out, you know, how it was when he played back then and. Uh, he's teaching, he actually has an academy. And so he's teaching players, you know, everything that he's learned and continues to learn. And so I think he's definitely a wonderful guest to have on the podcast. Uh, but before we start that up, I just uh, want to give you a little scoop, as they say, on uh, my tennis these days. I've been playing in a nine-five men's combo league and a five-zero um, uh, men's uh, league as well, and so it's been going well. I won my past couple matches. Um, actually, got to play with my uh, with a guy uh, Matt who played at the same university I did, although a, a few years back. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Had a tight first set. Uh, managed to prevail against a, a tough team. And uh, yeah, I've got some matches coming up. Got one tomorrow actually at nine PM. All the matches these days tend to be at nine uh, with the USA leagues, pretty much because the clubs, uh, you know, it's it's reasonable. They they can't really give out their prime time uh, prime time slots to us. They keep it for their members. So then. USA League players get the 9 p.m slots so yeah it's got to deal with uh, you know a little bit of a late sleep time but that's what those of us do who really love tennis and uh, want to play USA League so there you go um, but yeah yeah I hope you're improving your game and uh, just focusing on one thing at a time and and today we're gonna focus on the serve on the podcast so uh, without further ado here is my interview with Johan Creek. Hey guys, I'm Mirabana Ronschat and we're here at the 2017 Tennis Technique Summit to talk about tennis serve technique with Johan Creek from the Johan Creek Tennis Academy. Uh, It's really an honor to speak with Johan and he has an incredible resume. Uh, Johan reached an all-time high ranking of number seven in the world on the ATP Tour. Uh, Johan has won two Australian Opens. He was a semifinalist at the US Open uh, and he reached the semifinals at the French Open and the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. Uh, and he's also won 14 professional singles and eight doubles titles. Uh, Johan Creek has beaten some of the legends in the game, including Andre Agassi, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, and Bjorn Borg, which is just uh, simply amazing. And Johan is also the founder of Johan Creek Tennis Academy at the PGA National Resort in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Uh, Johan, I know you have really a crazy schedule, uh, you know, and so I really appreciate you joining us on the uh, Tennis Technique Summit. Well, this
2: is all new to me. My wife is the smart one, you know, she's the IT department, the billing department. She's the one that puts me onto this thing. So uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, nice to make your acquaintance. So I'm looking forward to answering some questions. And yeah, I, um, well, I had a very lucky career, man. I, I played a long, long time. And, uh, you know, when uh, when you grew up on a farm in Africa, you are not you don't dream too far because it's it's so unlikely, you know. And uh, so when I started to play tennis, and uh, just kept climbing the ladder, and just kept trying hard, and just kept going and going. And you know, lo and behold, what happens when you try? You don't expect too much. You can really shoot for the moon and maybe hit Mars, you know. So it's uh, it's been an amazing experience for me.
0: Fantastic, Johan. Yeah, you know your your story and what you've done and accomplished is uh, very ex- inspiring to all of us. And uh, it's really uh, just a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, so, Johan, I'm just going to ask you, you know, about how we. We, as uh, mostly amateurs listening here, can improve our uh, technique on our serve uh, so we can hit it more consistently and effectively. But I first want to ask you about the evolution of your serve. Um, so first off, um, how important was your serve to your success in winning you know, multiple Grand Slam titles?
2: Well, I think, uh, you know, to answer that question is a little bit, uh, let me back up a little bit. Obviously, when I started to play tennis, I was a very young kid and we were playing with wood rackets. So. You know, I morphed from a wood racket to a metal racket player to a composite player to a graphite player. So, I mean, I went through all four types of technologies. And, uh, you know, the sweet spot and nose rackets back in the 70s and 80s were very small. I mean, and we were serving and volleying with wood rackets and we were serving and volleying with metal rackets. And uh, it was was a very interesting time. And uh, I think that's why a lot of the coaches of my era are, are being sought after because i think we just have such a rich understanding of the game and uh, if you if you're still current you kind of you kind of know where you came from in a big way and you know where most of it is going and it's very very thin uh, the you know the, the the new technologies especially on the string side of things uh, have made an average player very very good very quickly and uh, the superstars are even that much better you know so um but the serve was a, was a big part for me. I um, I think, uh, and I try to teach this to my kids in the academy too, is that if you don't really understand your strengths and your weaknesses and what type of a player you are today, then I think that you, uh, you will never really reach your ultimate potential of what you can do. So it's very important that you know who you are as a player. Uh, you know, just to give you a great example, I mean, obviously – John Eisner is never going to be a Ferrer, and a Ferrer is never going to be a John Eisner, even though they play on the same tour and they're in the top twenty in the world. So, so they know exactly their place. They know exactly what they are. So, to come back to my personal experiences, that I was not the tallest guy on the planet. I'm five foot eight and a quarter, and I think I'm shrinking. Um, and uh, I had really surprised a lot of people. I think that was kind of like uh, my shtick, if you will, or my persona was like. When I first came out into the world of tennis, it was like, this guy's ridiculously fast and, you know, you think you hit a winner and then he hits a winner off your winner. So I, I kind of had this surprising effect on people. And so I think I had pretty darn good technique. I had very good hands. I was very talented in the sense of uh, balance. You know, I, I was a multiple sport activity player in school. I played rugby. I played cricket. I did athletics. I swam like a brick, but nevertheless, they threw me in the pool. So, I mean, I did all this cross training. So it was always, um, I was always a, a very, very good athlete. And I think combining the athleticism of those days uh, is even more so prevalent today. And uh, for me, it was more of my surprising the player more than anything else. I wasn't the best ground stroke player from the baseline. I wasn't necessarily the best servant volleyer, although I was very, very good at it. Um, you know, there were better servant volleyers, like I would say a Sampras or even a um, McEnroe and so forth maybe Ed Burke. so Becker those guys were tremendous servers and volleys I could mix it up very well I could stay back I could go up it was a bit of a chameleon so I think um, when I played different types of players in my era, when I played Jimmy Connors, I played more of a mix-up. I would junk him. I would slice. I would keep it low. I would hit high and loop. Uh, but against McEnroe, he, he forced you into such a narrow mindset of thinking of how to play that uh, I matched up very well with him. I didn't match up very well with Lendl, for instance. He was just a, a difficult player for me to match up. Uh, the way he hit the ball was a little bit out of my strike zone. Uh, but a guy a guy like McEnroe and Connors was a bit more flat and very cl- very. Uh, very flatter ball I, I matched up really well so back in my day um i would play a very different type of play as tactics and and and, and uh, strategies against john macker than i would against the john a, a, a jimmy Connors, for instance but i used my serve effectively i mean throughout my career i mean if i served well that day i could serve 20 22 24, 24 aces and um you know i even out aced uh, roscoe tanner one time in a set match which is unusual <laughs> But um, so that's kind of what uh, what I feel like uh, I played like in my day. And, um, you know, I think uh, having tactics and having some game plans today is, is also very important, even though most people are pretty darn good from the baseline and they rely on a heavy ball, especially the girls hit their back and it's probably better than the guys. Um, so the baseline game has become extremely prevalent and extremely important to have but uh, I think there's still room for some improvement in some of these areas for the level for the for the modern player
0: yeah definitely agreed uh, johan that's a lot of great background on uh, on your game and I was wondering you know obviously you mentioned that you can really ramp up uh, your serve if you want to with you know for example 24 aces how would you describe your serving style was it were you more of a power server or were you just you know placing all those you know aces in the corners or what do you how, how do you describe that
2: I have very good technique on my serve and I think I could disguise it very well because I would hit the ball pretty much at the top of my toss so it was a fairly quick action and uh, I had very clean technique so I could just you know with a flick of my wrist change directions at the last second and uh, and that's kind of like how Federer does it you know he's not the biggest server in the game but he's very accurate so if I was very accurate uh, then I served really well and you know if you serve well everything else improves you know <laughs> everything gets easier you know you get an easier return so that means you can volley easier it means that you can perhaps let it land and hit a winner or drop shot or something so so, uh, when when you start building your points around when you serve at least uh, on your accuracy and your speed I think I had pretty decent speed I served probably in the 125 mile an hour range most of my top career but those were funky rackets to serve that big but then was was pretty amazing but there were guys that serve 140 145 miles an hour even with wood rackets so um, the guys serve big today because the rackets are so much better and so better made and balance wise but um, there were some guys that served big when I played
0: Nice Johan. and just out of my uh, sheer curiosity did you have to make any any sort of uh, technical changes as you went through the different types of rackets that you played with? I
2: think it was inevitable that things would change because when I went from uh, from my wood rackets to the Redhead, uh, which was made in Kenelbach, Austria, I, I happened to live very, very close to there when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. So I became a head player. You know, I think because of the way that that racket was very rigid and uh, didn't have much flexibility. Uh, and then later on, I played with Rosignol rackets, which was a composite racket, was a foam-injected uh, plates of, uh, of aluminum, and then I stuck it into a machine and then they crimped it together with foam inside. I mean, it's like a French, you know, Citroen car, you know, it's a bizarre car, but it still <laughs> works well. But uh, so that's how we, we you know, so you, you, your game really morphed as the technology developed. And so you would swing maybe a little differently because maybe the racket was more head heavy or was more flexible. So you, you adjust as you need it. And, uh, you know, we played with rackets that were made for us and not, we didn't tell them how to make it. Like, you know, it's not like Frederick can walk into Wilson and says, hey, you know, I want all flat black and I want a little bit more graphite here and a little bit more stiff there, you know. So these rackets were custom designed. And there was nothing like that really back in our day frankly
0: yeah i think they should make one for you you know maybe uh wilson or dunlop or somebody um but yeah. I, I had my
2: own uh, rosignol racket with my own name on it which was pretty cool um for a couple of years after i won the australian open in 82 they made my racket for a couple of years and uh, rosignol was making rackets in the states um in vermont actually of all places so um it was kind of an interesting history of that but uh yeah i i was very fortunate i had a I had my own clothing at one stage with Lecoq's Petit. Funny enough, a lot of French companies, uh, I was very involved with a lot of French companies and some Italian companies.
0: Pretty awesome. Johan, now we're going to try to uh, get you to reveal your secrets on, you know, on the serve. So I guess I kind of want to start with, obviously, you know, the fundamentals in the beginning. So for the grip for you, uh, you know, what grip uh, did you pretty much use for your serve? And did that ever evolve or change with different types of serves or anything like that?
2: You know, I, uh, I have a very strong Eastern backhand grip. It was a spinnier grip but because I was very strong in my arms. I was pretty well... My dad was a rugby player. I was just genetically blessed with a very strong body. You know, I would muscle the ball a lot. I mean, I could just hit back hands and flick things. And so uh, I I found that if I wanted to hit very hard and swing as hard as I could, if I had a super continental grip, almost like an eastern forehand almost type of thing, like Boris Becker almost so with a forehand grip, um, I couldn't really... I couldn't control it as much. And so over time, I just learned to have a little bit more of a one-handed backhand grip, almost like an eastern backhand, and just literally absolutely destroyed the ball. And I could just turn my wrist a little bit flatter if I wanted to make the ball go flatter. So that's kind of how I played. I was, uh, I had just enough cup to hit it you know, way over 100 miles an hour every time. And my second serves were probably between, I would say, 95 and 105, 107 miles an hour second serves back in the day. So, um, you know, if you hit it close to the line, it's still a very tough serve to return. But um, I, I didn't really mess around with my grips too much. Um, I think one of the things that really messed me up was when I went from like a Rossignol racket to a Yonex racket, for instance. All the companies have different grips. Yeah, Head makes a very flat grip. Uh, Wilson makes more of a round grip. Yeah. So you know, when I got to be pretty finicky with my grips at around the earlier 80s, 84 or so, after I started to do really well, I realized that Warren Bosworth was the guru guy at the time for customizing rackets and he lived in Boca Raton, Florida. So he would make, he asked me one time, in fact, I think myself and Lyndall were the first guys that really got into this technology of having your rackets identical. And uh, so I would have all my rackets sent to Bosworth and he He'd actually asked me to make some comments on the grips or whatever I wanted to, you know, send me your rackets and tell me what you think of this one, what is that one. And I would just put a paper piece around the grip and put a rubber in it and made some notes. He couldn't believe how accurate I was by just feeling the racket. I could be a gram off in terms of height and feel it with my hand. So we were very, very finicky with our with our feel of the racket, the weight and obviously the size and the shape of the grip. Some rackets I would get from a factory, I couldn't hit a ball with it. And then the guy goes, yeah, the grip was completely off two millimeters too much to the right, so the head was a little bit shaped differently when you hit the ball, so just little things like that you know so that's why the guys are pretty accurate nowadays uh with uh, the customization of their rackets it's a, it's an absolute
0: must yeah it's really incredible how much it affects uh, you guys at that level of the game um and so you know you mentioned obviously that you use sort of a eastern backhand grip on your serve which is uh great to show that you know there's different ways to to do things and you can still be very successful but for most of your students do you, is there like a, a grip that you personally recommend to them um, on the serve
2: yeah i would- say there's a regular continental group is pretty much a very safe bet to go with uh if i see a kid shows up in my academy you know uh, not every kid starts with me i mean then i'll just be a beginner and a a customization type of coach for uh for up-and-coming players take 20 years to develop it a lot of kids come to me and they're already pretty well developed uh, have their own types of uh, styles and so forth so when i see genius i leave it alone you know, I'm not going to... If a, if a Nadal or a Celes or a, or a Santoro type of player shows up at my front door, I'm actually enjoyed it. I enjoy those types of players because you don't see so many of them. It's so, so few that you see it so rare. And by dexterous people, And you know, I, I find it kind of the spice of tennis life, if you will. Um, but I, I would say, you know, I, I play middle of the road for my regular kids, pretty much carnal grips on serves. If I find that the girls don't really feel that they get enough spin on the ball then I may make a tweak and change it to a two millimeter over. So it feels a bit more spinny for them. Um, and that's about it. But I, I I play pretty much middle of the ground with the grips on the serve.
0: Gotcha, yep. Johan. And so apologies in case I get this wrong for some reason. But when when I was watching old videos of you, I think, you know, for the stance part of it, uh, you would you have had a pinpoint stance and I think you might have brought your fee, uh, foot across but I was just wondering kind of your thoughts overall on on the stance of the serve
2: yeah I mean uh, obviously you know guys like a Macken completely stood sideways and, and you know, he just had his own way of serving which turned out to be one of the best ways ever of that era um, but uh, for me yeah sometimes I think you know if, if you look at anyone's career, I think if you look at the young Federer at 18, 19, and how he plays when he was 25, and when he played when he was 30, and now he's 36, 35, I think you'll see that the, the things do change over time. And whether you like it or not, things do change. And uh, I think from my, from my perspective, I think I ended up just by sheer not paying attention because I really didn't, I, I, I didn't really, I was more of a sensei player. What when I, when I mean by that is I feel the ball, I feel the way I play. I was very, very, I was very, I was very observant and I was very uh, in tune with what's going on around me and what's going on with the, with the opponent. So I was more of a sensei player versus a abstract player looking at my feet. Oh, I got to stand two centimeters this way. And then I'm not that type of player. I'm a complete field player. And so what happened with my right foot, I never really planted it next to my left foot. I kind of almost slid it in front of my left toe. So I was kind of like weird stance, but I could. I you know I was I felt all right and uh, no coach ever told me hey you know kind of looks funky you know <laughs> you gotta be maybe different so I just kind of kept it going but you know over time if I look at my surf now you know even when I was in my 30s I mean I probably was a bit more cleaned up at the bottom end of things
0: gotcha yeah that's great insight there and so you know with, with the motion obviously you see a, a, a wide variety you see the abbreviated you see the classic I'm just wondering in general you know what type of uh, motion you prefer and you know does that change depending on the level of the player and their development.
2: You know, the server is like, uh, the serve is like a fingerprint, honestly. I am a, I'm a very good coach when it comes to the serve because I had such a big serve for a little guy. I'm more of a classic guy. I'm a little bit more of a, of a classic salute type of server. Um, you know, there are so many varieties and so many ways that people hit the ball hard. It's really at the point of contact. I mean, it's almost the same in golf. You know, you have a Tiger Woods, for instance, who when he swings his golf club on a driver, I mean, it looks like he's going to come out of his shoes. And you have a guy like Freddie Couples or you have a guy like Ernie Els uh, who looks, uh, you know, no one they call them the big easy these guys look like they're on vacation they barely swing the club but yet they have 109 mile an hour clubhead speed at the point of contact and then you have like a Jim Furyk or you have a uh, you know uh, a Lee Trevino from way back and these guys you know they were very sensei players I mean Jim Furyk looks like he's spaghetti in his arm I mean the club head is all over the place but then by the time he hits it it squares off and he hits it perfect you know so the serve is very much the same I mean obviously uh You know, Nadal has, for a lefty, actually had improved his serve tremendously since 2007 in the last, I would say, 10 years. I mean, uh, his serve was not good when he first came on the tour, even though he was winning a lot. He was such a physical specimen, but his serve was really kind of a liability almost. Um, But he got away with it because he could spin it and he's a lefty and, you know, you don't play lefties all the time. You play lefties once in a while. So he got away with it but I think he knew that eventually people would be onto that serve and uh, so he had obviously with Uncle Tony made some changes to his serve. A guy like a Roger Federer is a very clean action, sort of more traditional maybe. Um, he's got uh, unbelievable smooth technique and timing and uh, he's a sensei player too. I think Federer is a you know, he could go away for a year and come back and still play the same, you know. Whereas in Adele, he'd probably go to the insane Island first, get his head straightened out, go out and play 10 hours a day for six months straight, and then he'll be back. Um, so, yeah, everybody's different, you know. Um, tennis players are just uh, it's like fingerprints, man. The service, you know, the grips are changing. I mean, if you look at the French guys, you know, they have a their system, I think, of coaching, which I think is great. I think the French system is to kind of freelance the guys. You know, they give them a lot of freedom.
0: So another question for you, Johan, um, just in general, when you you look at your students, I mean, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you can highlight for us um, that that you see?
2: I think that sometimes uh, people want to play tournaments too quickly and they don't really have proficiencies yet. I see that as a big problem because... Uh, inevitably what kids feel stress about is to perform and they will value their performance only on whether they win. Um, which is unfortunate because, um, I think winning, winning is great, but, uh, losing is even almost more important to learn from. Um, it's easy to play well and win when you, uh, when things are going your way. But, um, so I think sometimes kids play. Uh, competition a bit too early before they have really proficiencies that they can can feel like they are really competing properly. So I think that's one thing. Secondly, I think not understanding the importance of them knowing what their strengths and weaknesses are and how to hide their weaknesses and how to maintain uh, their, their, their strengths as much as possible. Um, I think that is a, an extremely important aspect. And uh, you know tactics and, uh, and and aspects of that. Um, I think a lot of kids, uh, when they don't understand their their tennis persona, uh, they flop from one mistake to the next, and it just becomes a ball of wax. And then you have the you have the mental complete meltdowns and the flare ups, and the, and the complete uh, you know they, they can be patterns developed because they they are not proficient mentally. They are not proficient in understanding who they play sometimes. Uh, maybe sometimes kids are too involved with only on their side. You know, there's three stages of uh, of development, I feel, in the junior re- uh, ranks uh, in tennis. One, when you first start, uh, you only worry about you and the ball. Okay, how far am I from it? Can I hit it? So that's the first thing. That takes a long time, so you can start hitting ends and volleys and serves and everything. And then uh, you start playing, and you are aware of where you are on your side of the court, you've got the balls, you've got everything figured out and distances and how to hit things and slices and rolls and volleys. And you get a little bit better. And you, you, you're very aware of your half of the court. And then the final stage is you are aware of everything. You're aware of the opponent. You're aware of the other side of the court. You understand the entire court. Um, kids, even if they're good, and they get emotionally frustrated for whatever reason, maybe they're immature, maybe they just don't have the knowledge to to go further with what they need to do. Uh, they tend to revert back to number one, basically, they may be a level three player, in reality, but uh, when you get emotionally uh, attached to the result too much, then you revert back to level one, which is just me and the ball, and you completely lose everything about where you are in the court, what kind of shots can you hit? from your strengths and what can you hit from your weaknesses that makes it more uh, palatable that you can play from that side. So, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, the, the, mental side of tennis is a massive, massive undertaking and, and, and I'm kind of good at that because I now know what I lacked as a junior and what I lacked as a young professional. And I almost learned a lot of these things by the seat of my pants really. And I was lucky enough to be aware of it. And, uh, I wish I had a coach of my caliber when I was really in the tens and 12, 14 years of age to say, listen, you know, um, this is what you do in this situation. This is how you deal with uh, stresses and this is what's going to happen when you get better. This is how you feel when you, as a 16 year old player, a 19, 20 year old, so very different mindset, a uh, very different type of athlete perhaps. And, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I still made it. I mean, I still made it at a very high level and, um, and it was because I was always lo- looking to learn and um, and not be too wrapped up with the win and lo- lose thing. It was more about being in the process. I think it's, it's
0: most important. Exactly, exactly. Focusing on the process, not the results, uh, extremely important. There, Johan, appreciate that insight as well. Want to go back, kind of, to the serve as far as hitting spin and slices, and again, you know, you know, feel sort of game for you. But what, in your opinion, are a couple keys that we can try to take? Uh, to help us really produce more more spin on the serve, because you know some of us have trouble with that, especially the uh, you know three o three fives four 0s
2: Well, obviously with 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 a grip, it's uh, very important that you know if you have a frying pan grip and you're serving pizzas all day long, you're never really going to have a proper spin grip. I mean, you're never going to have a real spin on your serve. So uh, if you want to really up your game, uh, you got to learn to hit with a continental grip, maybe a little bit more of a spin backhand grip to really get the spin going on the serve. I think that's very important. Um, You know, no risk, no reward. I mean, if you want to become a better player, sometimes it's it's risky. But uh, for sure, you'll get worse before you get better um i was a different animal i uh, i just was very hard-headed and um i said you know what i I try it and i didn't i didn't succeed at first i would try harder and harder and harder and kept going kept going and then eventually i would get it so um it's kind of kind of a different mindset you know if if you really want to improve uh, it's painful sometimes but um, you know maybe the results will be there Six, three, three, six months down the road. Sampras did it, you know. He was a two-handed player when he was a junior. And I think Andre very, very clearly said, you know, when Pete uh, at age 12, 13 decided to go from a two-hander to a one-hander, he couldn't beat anybody. Pete lost to everybody. And I mean, he lost badly to kids he used to beat. And uh, But that just shows you the mindset of a real champion. Uh, if you bite into it hard enough and you believe in it, then anything is possible
0: exactly yeah that's funny you mentioned that with uh, pete because uh, one of my uh, uh guests on the tennis files podcast jeff salzenstein he remembers uh he played pete and he beat uh pete but then uh, pete you know had just swish and pete kind of just gave him like a wry smile and you know just you know jeff knew that he, he was looking through the future at a big vision and and that's what happened <laughs> of course Um, So really incredible. Um, Kind of a a broad question that I'll try to narrow for you. If a player wants to improve their consistency on the serve, what are maybe one or two drills that you like to employ with your students uh, to have them improve that area?
2: Yeah, uh, very easy. I think uh, putting big cones, color cones. Uh, So, uh, you know, I go through the whole ritual of where to look after you bounce the ball. Because the average club player, you know, there's been studies now done by very, very sophisticated people that are in this field of eye tracking and where you look and because your brain is going to fire where your eyes are, right? So, you know, a classic example of a top player that never really materialized or served is probably Dinara Safina. I don't know if you've ever seen her videos Mm -hmm. when she served. I mean, she was fluttering her eyes like a bullfrog. She was looking at the sky and... You know, there's no toss yet, and then suddenly there's a toss, and you know she was not necessarily known for her serve. So the eyes play a massive role in your accuracy and uh, your smoothness of what you envision you're going to do. So I'm a big, I'm a big uh, proponent for visualization. Uh, I go through my rituals. That's very important to have in tennis, especially for the serve. If you get nervous and you used to bounce the serve five times, but now you bounce it twice, you're going to be out of rhythm even though you balanced it. It's funny how the human mind is. We are creatures of habit. So if we teach ourselves really good habits with good coaching, you know, from a very young age, then you're going to have that portion done, okay? So you can go on to bigger and better coaching. So uh, very important to stay in your rhythm uh, and your rituals. Two, um, proper technique uh, for your grip. Three, if people are not very accurate, I'll start them at the service line. And learn to serve with spin and just move them back two feet at a time. You serve five from here, you serve five from there, and you keep moving them back. And pretty soon you're at the baseline. And, uh, you know, so I like to do things in step-by-step progressions, make it easier for them to have some, you know, some, some results. And, uh, and you methodically get them tougher and move them back. And uh, put your cones out, color cones. You know, there's basically three spaces that you divide the service box in. It's either wide body or T and um, the same for the ad court. Now, you know, if you want to become much more in depth about these things, if you're really a competitive four-o player, you know, let's go through the rituals of serving to the deuce court and practicing to the ad court. Yes, there's, there's a lot more points, mega points, I call them, which means you either win with one point, you win the game or you lose the game. With one point. So if you look at how many times you can win or lose the point from which side more than the other side, obviously you want to practice your ad side a lot more than your deuce side. Think about it. There's only two ways that you're going to win a, a deuce point 40 15 or 15 40. There's two. But on the ad side, there's six love 40, 40, love. Adding out add out. 40 30, 30, 40. Uh, love 40, 40. So I mean, it's just a lot more points there that I quote mega points. Okay. So you better learn to practice. If you're really competitive, practice your ad code serves like crazy, because those are the more important ones that you can probably have more success.
0: That's a brilliant point that I've actually really never heard uh, before. I mean, that's great. Uh, great analysis.
2: I need to trademark that. I'm the only one that's ever figured.
0: That's right. You heard it here first. <laughs> Well, maybe someone else has heard it from you. I'm sure, but um, yeah, great stuff, Johan.
2: Somehow, Einstein already had that one down a
0: long time ago. Yeah, along with his other five billion formulas. Um, so, one question that uh, you know might be tough, but what's one myth about the serve that you know you'd like to just dispel for the audience?
2: I think in today's tennis, uh, I think that the return of serve and the defender skills needs to be on par with the big serve. I don't think you can really be competitive in today's professional tennis if you don't have magnificent return skills, which is defending, uh, and have tremendous skills in, uh, in in negating the power that comes from the serve, uh, whether it's returning uh, an Isner serve or returning a pinpoint accuracy like a, like a Federer, for instance. Uh, so I think uh, the myth of uh, your serve is the most important thing in tennis uh, it's not really true anymore I think uh, defending skills are just up there as, as, as just as important
0: that's a good one Johan. yeah I mean it's very important and like you said you know all the, there's different sorts of players so maybe for John Isner you know that's most important but for a lot of others you know it's not necessarily like that and you know another thing I want to just ask you is uh, you know what is one actionable tip that you would give the audience to help them improve the, the technical part of their serves
2: I found that uh, you know again the toss is probably the most important, because if you, you can have a perfect grip, perfect stance, perfect windup, but if you toss it in 15 different places and heights, then you're going to have 15 different serves. So you need to learn how to toss. And, and uh, I feel like, uh, you know, it's scientifically proven that we have more nerve endings in our fingertips. So you should hold the ball, whatever hand that you toss it with, pretty much more in the last two digits of your fingers, rather than in the palm of your hand. So I think that way you will be a little bit more accurate at leaving the ball in the sky. Uh, you may have a much smoother transition. I like to teach my kids where, you know, they, they don't flick the toss up. They kind of pendulum limit down and come up with uh, the toss a little bit faster. For the better players, we do work on the lag of the racket hand a little bit so they can get a little bit more pop. Um, but that's a long-term process to work on. And everybody's different. But I would say for the average player, really learn to toss accurately. And you know what you can do is, is you can get these like head makes a lot of rings, and you can put them in front of your left foot if you're a righty, and you put it up your right foot if you're a lefty. And uh, you know, um, try and toss the ball in that in that ring. You know, every uh, every four out of five balls. I mean, I think you'd be you'd be learning to to be more accurate with your toss positioning, and that'll help your serve become more reliable.
0: Gotcha, Johan. And sorry to get into to the minutiae of the, the toss technique, you know, maybe it's not that important, but as far as, um, you know, a couple of variables, do you prefer a straight arm uh, to minimize any sort of, uh, you know, extra movement? And also, you know, as far as the palm facing, do you really care? Do you think there's a... The, any the, the uh, particular angle of the palm, you know, facing down, facing sideways, facing up that uh, you prefer?
2: I think, you know, from my from my point of view, once the fingers and the, and the ball leaves the hand, there's no reason that your hand should be in any shape or form dropping, I, I suppose. But, uh, you know, if it twists a little bit, you know, people, I've seen girls that, you know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Their hands go completely the other way. And I'm like, how the hell did they figure that one out? But that's how they serve. And uh, so as long as it doesn't impact the if the toss is perfect, who cares what happens to your hand? you turn it this way, that way? This way, it doesn't matter. I'm sure that some of the sponsors would like to turn the hand this way to show the uh, Rolex watch or something. I
0: don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, it makes for more beautiful uh, looking tennis. So, Jan, what's the best advice that you've ever received uh, for your serve that you can remember?
2: You know, I think a limber wrist. And uh, I never had calluses on my hands when I played tennis. I never, I never had blisters on my hand. I never had calluses on my hand, uh, and um, it's just because I didn't really ground my racket grip into my hand. I didn't hammer lock it. I didn't overwork things. Uh, I had very limber, very loose joints on serving. So um, you know, it's uh, I, I think to just be limber in your and be supple with your shoulders because everything works in tandem. I mean, you got to twist, so you need to have a strong core. So when it comes to the fitness side of things, you need strong legs to launch, you need very much uh, explosive power in your quads and your hamstrings, you need great calves, you need springy ankles, you know, so, you know, all kinds of things you can do to help your serve is is to strengthen the core and strengthen the legs and uh, be limber in your arms and strong enough to withstand the pain of hitting uh, the serve a lot, you know, so... Uh, it, it is a contact sport. I mean, tennis is a contact sport. You're going to hurt. I don't think I've ever not woken up in the morning and go, like, "What happened? Why is this hurting now? What is this?" This is part of life for a tennis player.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of uh, annoying. You know, when you have people who don't play the game and they think like, "Oh, you know, sissy sport." But you know, it's it's really tough. You play a hard match the next day. It's hard to walk. I mean, sometimes.
2: I mean, I'm obviously a little bit more biased towards this issue, but I don't. I I think honestly, I don't, I don't think. There's too many other sports that require the uh, level of athleticism, the level of concentration, the level of incredible hand-eye coordination skills um, with amazing reading skills on the court. I mean, it's just uh, it's astonishing how well these players play in five-set matches for, for decades. And, and uh, maintaining uh, the type of level that a Roger Federer does, people don't even truly understand how amazing the guy is. And I certainly hope he can play a couple more years. I mean, I think he's the type of player could probably play close to 40 years of age. I mean, he's going to rewrite the history books like nobody has ever done. Maybe even uh, back in the 50s and 60s when Rod Labor and those guys played. And um, you know, so yeah. I mean, uh, it's a it's a it's a sport that requires a tremendous amount of effort and a tremendous amount of uh, time and money to to get at that level. So um, you know. It's, uh, it's it's in my opinion it's one of the toughest sports in the world because you do hit a ball and you got to hit it off somebody else's stuff. It's not a golf ball that sits on the ground and it's just you and the and the, and the distance and you and your club and you know somebody is doing something to something that you got to try and get back to him or let him run and go fetch it. But uh, so I think tennis is a very very unique game.
0: Very unique. Eh? Very unique indeed, Johan. And, you know, there's no shot clock either. You got to finish it off. Uh, that's the toughest part.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing is, if you, if you collapse mentally, you know, that's your stigma. And uh, so, you know, under pressure, that's why tennis players are are many times uh, when they quit, they're leaders of industry because they have unbelievable capability of figuring to work under stress. So, um, yeah, I think tennis is uh, not football. But uh, I'd rather be a tennis player than a football player any anywhere any day so um there comes the hate mail now um but uh anyway it's uh for me it's 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 a unique sport i just i, I just think it's a this mono a mono thing and being able to be out there for four and a half five hours and you finally win. I mean, this
0: is nothing like it. Yeah, for sure. Best sport, in my opinion, in the world, of course. Neon, um, before I ask you about, you know, what you're up to in the Yon Creek Tennis Academy, uh, any closing thoughts on, you know, on technique uh, on the serve or technique in general?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's so many points to think about on the serve. I mean, am I standing sideways on the line? Am I more at a 45-degree angle? You know, I, I, I teach more middle of the road. I think it's a little bit easier. But uh, I have my own... I have my own tricks up my sleeve of how I teach these kids to play. And it's kind of funny over time. Uh, people will always, you know, not necessarily see one of my kids with my own t-shirts on, but they will sort of just by the look of their tennis, know that these kids are from my Academy. It's kind of funny. It's kind of like your signature. And, uh, so, uh, and one of the signatures is that, you know, Johan Crick really knows how to teach the serve. Um, and that's kind of, it's a tough thing to teach. I think it's not necessarily the easiest thing to teach, but, uh, I have through trial and error found my own way of doing things for kids that just don't get it. And when they finally get it, they just like, thank you God, because you fixed this surf, but no, they fixed it themselves. They just didn't learn it the right way, or they just didn't understand it and stuff. So, uh, yeah, task positioning, uh, I teach mostly uh, tasks toss at about four, four to six inches above a stretched out arm and racket. And you know, maybe add another two inches if you jump off the ground. Um, you know, that type of thing. You gotta contact the ball pretty much when the ball just starts to drop, not when it's dropping two feet. I have no idea how the hell Steffi Graf ever got her serve in at Wimbledon with the wind. She would be fourteen feet up in the air and then go boom, she still hits it. Well, I unbelievable talent. So uh, you know, I'm more of a I'm not a guy that teaches everybody to serve like a Dolgopolov either, you know, where the ball is rising fast and you just clock it while it's going up. I mean my old buddy, Kevin Curran, used to serve like that. The Roscoe Tanner served like that. But that's, you know, very few guys could do that. And that's kind of how they learned to play, you know. And uh, they had big serves, so yeah, there's something to be said. Hitting the ball on the rise, okay, well, should everybody do that? No. Then go tell that to Roger to Roger Federer, you know. Hey, Rog, you know, you want to really <laughs> freak guys out on your surf? Hit the ball on the rise, you know. That's how you learn to play. It's like you, what you feel like you can can handle. and you know, let them, let, them, let them do their thing, so I'm, I'm a little bit more middle of the road in the regular coaching environment, but uh, if I see genius, I'll leave it
0: alone. Gotcha, on yeah, I think middle of the road is generally, you know, the best uh, in, in many things, so so yeah, I mean, obviously you've, you've taken your passion for the game and an illustrious career to uh, coaching, and you've got uh, the Yohan Creek Tennis Academy. So can you just kind of talk us through, you know, what, what the Academy is all about and what you're doing over there?
2: Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, we're, uh, we're extremely excited to have been here now for six months at the PGA Resort and Spa down in Palm Beach Gardens. They, uh, I, I may have seen on TV the last few we- the last week that they had the Honda Classic here. They had it at the, uh, at the PGA Resort, uh, you know, uh, Ricky Fowler won it. And, uh, you know this area is just absolutely fantastic for us. The academy is uh, for kids ages. Uh, we have quick start programs from the ages three and a half to six and seven, and we even have beginners older than that. So we have a plethora of different programs within the academy, and uh, our home is here at the PGA Resort. They have 19 tennis courts. They got 18 clay and one hard court, and a fantastic gym. Uh, lots of things for us to do. We can uh, we can do mental training in our classrooms upstairs above the gym um and we have uh former pros or touring pros or itf players coming in periodically to, to train with us and their coaches come and you know they always wanted to have my input as well and um it's just really you know that's i know so much about the game and the professional game i stay current i go and watch a lot of tournaments i go to the open i go to wimbledon i go to miami go to a couple others i very much involved in the business of tennis and uh, you know my passion has always been the sport i mean i uh, this, this virus is very bad. You can't shake it. And uh, so uh, so I enjoy uh, transferring some of my knowledge to the younger crowd. And, uh, you know, some kids are just hobby players. Some just want to play high school tennis. Some want to go more towards college. And I, I, uh, I'm very proud to say that over the years, the last 10 years that I've been coaching, I've had 100% success rate in placing kids that are going to D1, D2 colleges. And um, and uh, that's one of the things that, that is so great about this country is the fact that you can, through your sport, get a free education. I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable what's in America. is just uh, a truly, I don't think most people really truly understand what, how fortunate we are that we live in this country. And I think, uh, you know, faults and everything, uh, I don't see people running to North Korea. I see most people want to come to America. So I appreciate it. I, uh, I take every day uh, as a new day and a new beginning for me and, we absolutely love coaching these kids. We have kids from all over the world. I mean, I have a kid from Japan here. And sometimes uh, my sign language is not so good, but we still get the message through. <laughs> and we have Russians sometimes. We have Bulgarians, Romanians, Polish. We have South Africans. We got a lot of Americans, a lot of local market kids. So, uh, uh, you know, we're basically a rainbow nation of, uh, of tennis here. So I have a lot of female coaches. I love to work with female coaches to uh, help the girls. I think that's very important and uh it's fun to have some of these you know radwanska was here not too long ago for two weeks ula radwanska was coming back on the tour so we helped her out a little bit and uh, so it's it's just fun to uh, to still be current and see you know uh, a little bit of knowledge that you gave somebody is really blossoming into a, a good tennis player
0: that, that's that's very rewarding for sure you and you guys are doing great work over there and uh, i mean if if you guys want to be uh mentored and trained by a Grand Slam champion, top 10 uh, ATP. I mean, I think the Johan Creek Tennis Academy is the place to to go. Uh, so where can we find you, you know, online and uh, obviously in person uh, in the academy? Where, where can we follow you online?
2: Yeah, I actually, um, we have our website, uh, www.johancreektennis.com. So, uh, that has a lot of, a uh, lot of information about the academy. And, uh, I'm uh, happy to announce that I will have uh, my first major junior tournament here in uh, in August, 13th through the 19th. I signed a, an agreement with 10 Pro Global Junior Tour out of Holland. They have tournaments in Holland. They just finished them in Holland. They have uh, tournaments at uh, Muratuglo Academy in Nice, France. And they have uh, Kim Kleister's Academy in Belgium. And they also have Rafa Nadal Academy in Mallorca. So I'm very an illustrious company with the Johann Creek Tennis Academy being the only academy in the United States that has this tennis tournament. So it's ages 8 through 16, and you can play uh, in different divisions if you're younger, and uh, it's a wonderful format because the minimum matches you'll play will be four. So if you're eight years old, you're going to play four matches if you lose everything. You know, if you come here and you play the Orange Bowl or you play the Eddie Herr, you know, we play, and you lose first round and you play back or you lose again, you, you're gone. You just spend $2,000 on an airfare. 500 dollars in food and hotel another thousand you're out four grand and you play two matches you know it just doesn't make too much to sense so we are nestled right in a time where there's not a lot of national junior tournaments going on so we're going to have a camp for the creek academy or the, it's called the creek cup usa 2017 with oh, okay. with 10 pro global junior tours so Uh, There will be some information coming forth uh, pretty soon on our website about the tournament and we will have links so people can sign up for the camp or they can sign up through uh, the online link uh, through 10 pro global tour, because they have the database. They've got 1.5 million people in the database for tennis tournaments and parents. It's fantastic. Uh, They're going to help us promote. So I'm very, very excited about the tennis tournament in the future. We'll be here at the 10 at the, you know, pga resort and spa i mean we've got a 350 room hotel we've got a fabulous hotel with uh, everything you can imagine with a spa so parents can have fun we have four golf courses on property i mean there's not too many places that can boast about four golf courses in fact they have five i live in the fifth one here uh, about 10 miles away but so there's a lot for, for adults to do here it's a uh, palm beach gardens is a, a very fast upcoming area brand new malls and lots of things here it's uh You know, it's only half an hour to go Google where, go Ogle where Mar-a-Lago is and Donald Trump is. It's a lot to be done here. Um, But uh, so I'm very excited about the tournament. Um, I found him online. I mean, the guy didn't seek me out. I seeked him out. And the next thing we discussed it and he goes, well, we wanted to do something in the United States. And I won out because we have this wonderful facility uh, with a hotel on property. So you can walk from the hotel to the tennis So we'll have that. But we'll have a nice tennis camp from the 7th through the 12th of August as well so that kids that want to come and prepare, because it's very hot that time of year. It's the dead of summer in August. It's very hot. So we'll probably play from 8 to 12, and you know it's going to rain. And then we'll play again late in the afternoon till maybe 8 o'clock at night. So we'll have eight hours of tennis a day. So, uh, you know, I'm very excited about that. And then on top of that, I'm uh, hoping to finishing my own Johan Creek Tennis app uh, this year. And maybe later part of the summer we'll finish it off and uh that's going to be very multifaceted i um i love to tell stories i've always been a kid that could tell great stories and um you know there's just going to be i'm 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 known to be a tennis player but there's so much more to my personality and what i do i love to cook i love to travel i love wildlife i like photography i like uh, politics i like uh, issues and uh i'm i'm it's going to be a it's going to be a lively app. Let's put it that way. There's going to be a lot of things in there.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, Johan. That that sounds so interesting. I have to get you on the podcast sometime. We can talk about all that stuff. Uh, that'd be incredible. But uh, Johan, I just want to thank you really so much for all your time today, uh, for everything you've done for the tennis community that you continue to do. Uh, also, thanks a lot to your wife Daga for being the uh, tech expert and setting this all up. Uh, I mean, I just really appreciate you coming on to the Tennis Technique Summit and, and giving us a lot of great advice. Uh, you know, thanks and all the best to you.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, like I said, you know,
0: if in doubt, crush it. That's it. <laughs> awesome advice. Thank you so much, Johan. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Grand Slam champ Johan Creek. Johan, thanks so much for speaking with me uh, on the summit. And I'd also really appreciate it if you all would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast and you can do that by hitting the large subscribe button. I don't know if they're all large, but uh, the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app that you use to listen to the show. And for iTunes in particular, you can go to TennisFiles.com slash iTunes and then click that subscribe button. I made that link just for you. uh, Easy way to find the podcast. I also... We'll have all the links mentioned uh, during this podcast uh, on the show notes page, as always. And this one will be at tennisfiles.com slash 89. And you can read the summary, even though you already listened to the entire episode at this point uh, of the podcast. And to get more episodes, simply go to tennisfiles.com slash podcast. Uh, That's... Uh, I have a huge uh, player there, smart podcast player uh, that you can where you can access all the episodes. And you can, of course, once again, go to any podcast app that you use and just search Tennis Falls, the Tennis Falls podcast. And if you're subscribed, you won't even have to search; it'll automatically be downloaded to your app, which is the great advantage of subscribing. And it's super easy. But uh, yeah, really, uh, really appreciate you listening to the show and. Before I forget, I would like to leave you with a quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show. If I don't, then my video editor or my audio editor for the podcast, Omar, uh, hits me upside the head with a virtual slap uh, via Facebook emoji. And uh, the quote today is by Victoria Osteen. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, And Victoria said, We only have a certain amount of energy for each day. If we use it for the wrong purpose, if we focus on the negative or dwell on whoever hurts us, then we're not going to have the energy we need for the right purposes. And that's very true. I mean, you really need to... Understand that you don't have infinite amounts of energy, so you might as well focus it on positive habits and actions that will get you to where you want to be the most and to not waste them on uh, unimportant things. You know, obviously, a break's fine, or, you know, it's some sort of uh, fun excursion or whatever, but uh, definitely keep your eye on the prize. And, uh, you know, it takes a lot to become great. Uh, If it was easy, then everybody would be a fantastic, amazing player. So uh, keep working hard and uh, appreciate all your support uh, for the podcast and uh, the blog and the summit and everything. And I'm working ridiculously hard right now to (laughs) put together the summit. Uh, If you have any uh, suggestions as far as uh, really, really top notch coaches, uh, I only have a few slots left at the moment. Uh, for the summit, which uh, is slated right now for mid-May, then feel free to email me at mirabon at tennisfaz.com. That's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfaz.com. And, yeah, just working to put together the best summit uh, that I can and trying to improve it. Uh, This will be the third year. Uh, It's got some fantastic names once again and uh, great content, and uh, I'm just trying to help competitive tennis players win more matches and reach, you know, your your potential. So, well, that's all I have for you today, um, but thanks again for listening, and we will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, everyone.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.